Hey everyone, Mitchell Hora here. And I'm Zach Johnson, and this is, of course, the Fieldwork Podcast, which is a podcast by farmers, for farmers. Special thanks to the Walton Family Foundation for their support this season. Zach, we're taking it even further south away from Canada today. We're leaving the Midwest, and we're traveling to southern Virginia. That's where John and Kara Boyd farm, and where their families have farmed for generations. Yeah, and they are plugged into networks that our podcast hasn't really been able to tap into before. John is actually the president of the National Black Farmers Association, and Kara runs the American Indian Farmers Association. African American and Native farmers have faced a lot of discrimination from the USDA and from other government agencies. Their ranks have dwindled over the years, and today 98% of private farmland is owned by white farmers. We talked with the Boyds about a whole bunch of stuff, including what they're doing on their own farm to try to adopt regenerative principles. Joining us now on Fieldwork Podcast is Kara Boyd. She is the co-founder and president of the Association of American Indian Farmers. Um, Kara, can you give us a story of how you became a farmer and then from there how you became an activist? Well, I guess I was born a farmer. I'm a member of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. And, you know, being an indigenous person here in North America, you know, I, I think we've always been growing and producing our food. Um, I was in the uh, the fields oftentimes playing as a child uh, as my grandparents, um, you know, harvested, planted and harvested uh, produce. Agriculture and farming was just, you know, really a way of life. I would probably say I became more so of an active farmer uh, when I married Dr. Boyd and um, became an integral part of uh, Boyd Farms. So tell us more about the farm that you guys run today. What type of crops and uh, tell us a little bit more. Well, we have a diverse um, farm operation. Uh, we own and operate about 1,500 acres in Southside, Virginia. Um, our largest tract of land is 1,000 acres. Um, we have a cow-calf operation. We have row crop. Uh, we also have some organic uh, vegetable production, and we also do foraging. Uh, and we also have timber. So, you know, we're very active in agroforestry extremely diversified. And I understand you've got some regenerative practices that you use on the farm. Can you run us through some of, of what you're doing out there? <laughs> Most definitely. Um, you know, with our cow-calf operation, one of the things that we're doing is uh, we're introducing more uh, perimeter fencing around the open cropland where we were just doing row crops. Um, so we're doing cover crop, we do no-till um, planting, and we also look at our water runoff and conservation because we are on two miles of Lake Gaston, which is uh, traditionally the Roanoke River. And so regenerative agriculture practices are very important to us because we want to build our soil health um, so that we can have, you know, healthier crops and healthier people and hopefully pass on um, our farms to the next, you know, generation. The work for the Association of uh, American Indian Farmers is really unique in that our mission is to service all Native Americans, regardless of Indian status. And I know that for many of your listeners, that may be kind of new terminology, um, but you can almost equate it to apartheid. Native Americans are the only ethnic uh, group within the United States that have to produce documentation to verify that they are who they say they are. So we have tribal enrollment cards 
cards. We have blood quantum cards. Um, so if a, a black farmer goes in and applies for a service and says, I'm, I'm black or I'm African-American, they don't have to produce a card or any type of supporting documentation proving that they are, or even a Hispanic person, but Native Americans do. And that is just, you know, some of the barriers that uh, the Association of American Indian Farmers um, has, has taken on. So you kind of hit there on the fact that, you know, a lot of Native American farmers still today are facing some discrimination um, here in the country. So are there other examples you have of that 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 you can talk about? Yes. Um, you know, and, and the majority of Native American farmers, uh, if they're on reservation, then they're dealing with um, fractionalized land. They're dealing with land leases. Um, so that's it's kind of unique. And then we have a lot of uh Native American farmers who maybe aren't enrolled or members of federally recognized tribes. And so that is a barrier when we're talking about access to funding. Does that dig into some of the day-to-day work then like that you really get into is helping to address some of these um, scenarios or I guess keep digging us a little further on, um, you know, what are you, what are some of the things you're working on uh, right now? Native American farmers, you know, grow and produce, and maybe they have uh, grapevines, peak entries, they have cash crops, um, but they're not necessarily enrolled in participating in USDA programs. You know, if USDA was a one-stop service center and you didn't have to know which agency you needed to go to, because I got to go to farm service agency and get my farm serial number, then I got to go to NRCS and apply for the equip program, and then I got to go to FNS to get my um EBT equipment, my SNAP equipment, you know, that's one of the challenges um, that the association has taken on is to help those small scale indigenous farmers to be able to navigate that system. Being able to navigate uh, (laughs) USDA programs is a massive headache. Um, And yeah, something that I do not enjoy doing uh, for our farm. That's for sure. I don't think anybody enjoys that. No. Well, I do. You love love USDA. You should go work for them. My thing is, if we understand administratively how this program and these in this agency works, then we're able to navigate it. And uh, I'm a former um, Indian Health Service uh, employee and also Food and Drug Administration. And uh, I'm a veteran. I was in the Air Force. And so, you know, that's kind of been one of my things is that I really enjoy taking on um, some of the administrative tasks I see and some of the barriers um, in trying to streamline that system and access for farmers of color and, and small scale farmers. So as you're you know, looking out over um, the Biden administration and what Secretary Vilsack is looking at, what are some of the um, next areas that you anticipate addressing um, or some of the goals, I guess, that you've got for the next couple of years here too? Well, I would like to see, you know, more details on the climate action. I'm really interested in the carbon bank and I have partnered, uh, John and I, um, through the National Black Farmers Association and the Association of American Indian Farmers with RIPE and looking at hopefully maybe increasing um, the payment that is being tossed around for 18 to $20 an acre uh, for some of the uh, 
the carbon sequestration uh, practices um, that we would be looking at maybe more of a hundred dollars. And so that's what we're in, in creating the the standards and the credentials. And so I'm really looking at um, how we can provide some of those solutions, very workable solutions um, with outreach and technical assistance that can go down to underserved farmers in a timely manner so that we increase uh, program participation. Were there some initial failures when you started getting into the regenerative stuff that really stood out to you, some of the stuff that you learned the hard way? We had issues with weeds. Uh, you know, we actually had reduce, reduced um crop yields because of the weeds. And uh, in this area, we're definitely uh, fighting um, pigweed um, with some of the other techniques. So it's kind of been one of those things, a little bit of a, like you said, a trial and error, a learning experience to see, you know, what was going to work best. And if we had um, diminished yields, but we had less inputs and we felt that we had a a better crop, a more healthy organic crop, you know, was it worth the trade? So just to remind everyone too, a little anecdote on, you know, that the principles of soil health is really what this boils down to and that the principles are what can be, you know, just tweaked to be adopted everywhere. But those principles of keeping the soil armored, um, keeping living roots at all time, implementing diversity, reducing disturbance, um, but also the, the livestock integration as well. So really interesting to me that you guys were able to make all of them work, um, but a key point there is Southern Virginia is significantly, you know, south of where I'm at in Southeast Iowa and just a hop, skip and a jump south of where Zach's at up in Minnesota. But what do you see for other farmers in your area? Are there other farmers that are also adopting more regenerative systems? Well, they are. And and one of the things, you know, is the cost share reimbursement for the cover crops and working with NRCS and those payments. And, you know, being the advocate that I am, uh, is I I wanted to challenge that policy and that the farmers were not able to um, harvest and sell those cover crops. They had to forage them or um, till them in. And so, you know, would you have a three crop rotation system or a two? Um, and so, you know, that's kind of been where some of the other farmers are looking uh, at what we're doing and we're looking at what they're doing um, to seeing how we can come up with best practices. Is there specific challenges right now, this time of year or this year specifically that you guys are seeing? Has COVID affected your farm at all with some of the niche markets and the regenerative stuff that you're doing? Oh, definitely. Um, One of the uh, initial uh, challenges that we had was when the local livestock markets were closed. Uh, So we weren't able to go and sell off cattle. Um, So that created uh, challenges, you know, with hay and how we were going to feed them, you know, through the winter. Um, One of the other challenges is, you know, we were late uh, harvesting and we're losing soybeans because we weren't able to um, get them harvested. But there again, um, Dr. Boyd says, well, you know, these beans are, you know, the best source of nitrogen. So we, you know, aren't looking at it as a total loss, but that, you know, it'll just go back into the soil. We're feeding Mother Earth. And so COVID-19 has definitely um, increased those challenges in uh, going to the markets, being able to sell, but also um, with being able to have uh, 
demonstrations and other farmers coming to the farm and us working with them um, has been a challenge in implementing some of the uh, practices or sharing some of the practices that we wanted to uh, with other local farmers. So we, we've been challenged to have to go into the, you know, the virtual world of uh, sharing knowledge. So do you think with having the Native American background and growing up as a farmer, do you feel like that sort of helped you branch off into the regenerative space? Is there stuff that comes from that 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 makes you feel like, you know, whether it's whether it's you feel like you want to go regenerative because of that history or it ties you directly to it? Well, I think it really ties me directly to it um, because I look at regenerative agriculture as a set of practices and solution. Um, and how do we work with nature instead of against it? How do we, you know, move away from more artificial and, um, you know, man uh, made initiatives to kind of speed the process um, for some of uh, nature's natural course? And so um, I'm also a part of a Native Organizers Alliance. And so working and looking uh, across the country, especially like in the four, uh, the four corners region, um, I have elders, you know, um, that are on the Navajo reservation, uh, part of Black Mesa, who, you know, have been heavily impacted with uranium mining um, in the Acoma Pueblo, where their wells are all arsenic water. You know, how do you grow and produce food with arsenic water? You know, how do we make sure that the things that are happening or have happened in other parts of the country, you know, don't happen um, all over the world? And so I think from an indigenous perspective, saying that the actions that and things that we do being stewards and caretakers would have us to have better practices in place um, so that we can leave a, a healthier earth and a healthier, better soil health for the next seven generations. Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Boyd's ready when you guys are. He is uh, off his other call. Uh, and he's talking about he's hungry. <laughs> that sounds good. You and me both, John. You guys want to switch, you can do that right quick. Well, Kara, it's been really great to talk to you and uh, really appreciate having you on here today. Super interesting conversation. Yeah. Thank thank you, Kara. We got to talk with what's well, one half of Team Boyd. Now we get the privilege of talking to the other half of Team Boyd. Okay. And uh, so super excited um, to be able to, to discuss with you what you've got going on on your farm. But tell us a little bit more about like who you are. Give us some of your background. Uh, well, uh, I'm pretty much a, a fourth generation farmer. My parents were like uh, many blacks who who moved up south to, the, you know, try to find a better way of life, uh, you know, leaving the farm. And uh, I was actually born in, in Queens, New York in, in 1965. So I'm telling my age a very, very long time ago. And my parents moved back uh, to the farm, uh, to my grandfather's farm, Thomas Board in the in the late 70s, uh, about 1978, 79. And uh, so it was a big change for me as a, as a young boy, young teenager. Uh, you know, although I was spending my summers in the country, I still liked going back, uh, you know, living in the North and playing with all my friends and all of, all of that. But uh, long story short, I, I fell in love with the farm and I fell in love uh, with the spirit of it. And uh, I learned so much uh, about uh, farming and, and agriculture from my dad and uh, my grandfather, uh, Thomas Board and Martha Board, uh, on their own farm right here on the historic Runa River. And uh, my mother's parents, uh, Lee and Ruth Robinson, 
were sharecroppers. And uh, my grandfather, Thomas Boyd, was was born in 1894. So I knew someone who was born in 1894. So that's my kids can't believe that, but it's uh, it's true. Uh, so I learned how to farm from from uh, both of them, and I also learned how to live uh, by both sides. And my grandparents, who uh, my dad's parents, were straight up churchgoers and uh, deacon and a trustee in the church, all of that. So I got to get that um, uh, makeup, and and uh, my mother's parents were sharecroppers, and they sold bootleg whiskey. So they had a great time from Thursday night to Sunday night. And I got to see what shucking and jiving and double talking and bringing your girlfriend to the juke joint. I, I got to see got to see what all that looked like. Uh, so I used that and some of my uh, makeup of who I am today. So now I have a good a good take of uh, based on my upbringing is who's telling the truth and who's shucking and jiving. So I got I got to I got to be able to, to read people. I think we need to like pause on our on our interview here and zach and i are working on getting a helicopter and we need to come out there to virginia because you still you got to have some of that whiskey still around you got to help me out with it well you know uh you know moonshine is still made in this part of the country it's 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 a whole lot of history there so so to speak and uh i don't fault my grandparents because they were doing what they could do uh you know to 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 make it you know, you, you don't make much on sharecropping. You sell your crop and you probably owe the guy more than what the crop bought and, and you start all over again last the, the next year. So the moonshine helped off, offset some of the cost and, uh, you know, the ability to, to, to raise their kids. We raised our tobacco, uh, some peanuts, small cotton. And then uh, as I became a farmer at the age of 18, uh, our crops were uh, tobacco, uh, soybeans, wheat, and corn, and a small head of, of beef cattle is what we were doing. And I got introduced to the United States of, uh, Department of Agriculture by another black farmer uh, who I bought his farm. His name was Russell Sally. You know, I didn't know anything at that time period about uh, U- USDA or quote unquote the, the Farmers Home Administration or whatever it was called back then and uh he asked me well where are you gonna get money to buy the farm from i said i don't know where you know where you know where did you get money from and he said well the farmers home administration you know they stopped having the negro extension agents and they're supposed to be helping uh you know black farmers now you know he said but good luck with them folks up yonder that's what he said he said but i'll take you up there and, and uh, introduce you to them they didn't already, you know, got rid of me. And it's, that's how I spoke in that type of dialect. And I did, and I applied, and, you know, was an 80s kid. And I thought that civil rights had progressed to where far, far along with what I was about to run into. And, uh, you know, I played sports. And uh, quite frankly, uh, my best friend, his name was Jerry Jordan. We played basketball, football, and baseball, and uh, close your ears, Carol. We even chased girls together. You know, he was a white guy, you know. So I thought we had advanced past all this, all this black and white tension. You know, you know, we kind of knew it was there, but no one really discussed it like that. And uh, so I ran into uh, Farm Service Agency. His name was James Garnett, 
And man, my life changed, you know? And I listened to how he spoke and 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 talked loudly and boastfully to uh senior statesmen, you know, black farmers. Uh I was 18 and many of the the guys in the hallway were senior statesmen to me, 60s and 70s. And he was talking down to them and calling them boy and just stuff that, you know, seemed, seemed unreal, you know. And he would only see uh, black farmers on Wednesday. So we named it Black Wednesday. Uh, we named it Black Wednesday. We're all in the hallway, you know, waiting to apply for these loans and stuff like that. But we never, we never spoke about how Mr. Garnett was uh, talking to us. You know, that was like taboo. We didn't, didn't, didn't discuss it. And one day I was in the hallway and we all, you know, started comparing the letters and they all said 9 a.m. I said, well, how in the hell is this guy going to see everybody at nine o'clock? We all had the same letter. So we named it Black Wednesday. We all sat there and waited and he left the door open and we listened to how bad he, he, he spoke to our fellow counterpart farmers and we just didn't say anything, you know? We knew it was there, but like I said, it was more of a taboo, you know, old black pride thing. You know, we just we just didn't talk about it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the dialogue between me and Mr. Garnett was, and the tension was awful. And, uh, you know, it was just like he, things went from bad to worse. We tore my application up, threw it in the trash can one particular time and I spat on me tobacco juice on, on, on my shirt. Uh, just all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't think come from someone that worked in the government. And it seemed as though we didn't have any redress or, or recourse. And I started filing uh, civil rights complaints, uh, sending them to Washington. You know, they had, this, they had this board up on the wall and they said, well, if you feel like you've been discriminated against, here, write us, write us at this address. So that's what I started doing. But I didn't hear anything about them. And I kept copies and I ran across a lady by the name of Ava Marshall. And uh, she heard me speak at a local NAACP event about how bad this guy was dogging me. And, and uh, she said, did you keep any copies of your complaints? I said, yeah. She said, well, I'm, I'm gonna come to your farm and, and spend some time with you and go through them. And she did, and uh, she looked at the complaints and uh, she went back to Washington and you know rattled the cage a little bit. Uh, long story short, the government wound up firing her for, for trying to help us uh, resolve those cases. She was penalized and they issued uh, a uh, finding of discrimination based on some of her work. Uh, they issued me a finding of discrimination where they said USDA discriminated against John Board in this year, that year, and that year. And then they said, well, we've never settled one of these before. So there's no process by means the United States Department of Agriculture could take corrective action, you know, monetarily. You know, we can make some changes in-house, but we wouldn't be able to compensate you. They said you would have to go to uh, Congress to get that to get that uh, in place. So we did. And uh, we went to Congress to lift the statute of limitations and put in place a uh, civil rights administrative process by means to which they could compensate farmers like myself who had a finding of discrimination 
And my, my case became the first uh, case to, to be settled at USDA, where I was able to get my land out of federal inventory, uh, a little piece of happy change, and, uh, and, and some sort of apology. We're going to take a short break and come back with John Boyd. Back in 1997, John Boyd helped to organize 400 black farmers to, among other things, file suit against the United States government. If you want to look it up, it's the Pigford case. It ended with a $2 billion settlement, the largest civil rights case in history. How has that changed You know what's going on today and the issues that you're working on today now with the National Black Farmers Association? Well, the issues today uh, remains uh, as uh, access to credit and, uh, you know, fair treatment at, at USDA. And, and even though we, we made some progress, uh, uh, n- nobody was penalized or, or fired uh, for the act of discrimination. And uh, Secretary Vilsack, he says, uh, based on some conversations I've had with him and others, uh, that he's changing and he's going to do things differently and he's going to address uh, the issues of, uh, of black farmers and and Farmers of color, Native American farmers and women. He's gonna he's gonna make these things a priority, and uh, you know that's that's gonna be remain to to be seen. And I'm willing to give him a try and try to work with him uh, to get these things done. So in 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 those conversations with him, what are what are some of those things that you're that you're discussing with him, or you know some of the priorities you really want him to to tackle? I said he should appoint some some people of color, you know, that want to do the right thing. You know, in his uh, cabinet, uh, you know, uh, undersecretaries and uh, secretaries and and and, and deputies, uh, because Vilsack's only one person. Uh, there's a person over Farm Service Agency. There's a a person over Rural Development. There's a per- person over NRCS. These are many different targeted areas uh, that have our uh, leadership, and I'm hopeful that they will appoint people who would see this issue as something that they would incorporate and, and try to fix. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't care if it's a white person, I don't care what color you are, but if you go there and you're a, a secretary and, and a deputy or undersecretary, do the right thing because, uh, you know, time isn't on our side anymore. You know, the numbers are dwindling for minority farmers and we're not putting enough placeholders in place to, to to fix it in time. I think there's a tad bit different between uh, Sonny Perdue and, and, and Secretary Bilsack. Uh, you know, one is picking up the phone saying, hey man, I want to try to get it right this time. And the other is telling me to go to hell straight on in the handbasket, you know? So I'm going to give the guy a try who's, who's picking up the phone and say, look man, let's try to work this thing out. Communication is the key to fixing any problem. Uh, as long as the two parties aren't talking there's never going to be resolved uh so uh he wasn't my first pick but i commend him for opening up the dialogue and picking up the phone and say hey man how do we fix this you know i want to make it better and i want to work with the administration and and to get to important issues like what carol just you know climate change yeah all of those things because it seems like you know their priorities so far are going to be looking at um at carbon at regenerative ag what do you, you know, what's some of your thoughts on that? If you're a large-scale farmer and you want them to switch to regenerative agriculture, 
then uh, there has to be some examples to do that because you, you got some guys out there, man, farming 30,000 acres. And you're telling them, uh, well, this uh, all this other support, you're not going to get it anymore, man, but we're going to give you guys $15 an acre to switch over to this carbon initiative, you know, climate initiative. And that's going to be a tough sale. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm not here uh, touting my hat for any large-scale farm. I, I, I'm, I'm not against them. I, uh, I believe you, you need big agriculture to help feed the world. And I understand that's an important uh, percentage. Uh, but you also need the little guy. You need the little guy, too. He's the guy buying diesel fuel in his local town and some seeds and and employing and a, a few a few employees in, in local rural America. We need those guys too. Uh, so I believe that uh, you know making the, the the right change where this program could be beneficial to large scale farmers, uh, mid mid scale farmers, and small scale farmers. You got to find a way to make it work for for all three. And you know, uh, big subsidies only work for big farmers. You know, the smaller the acreage, the less the payment. And, uh, you know, it's farming has changed, man. All of the expenses are going up. And, uh, you know, I need my income to I need my income to go up with it. You know, I've, I've sold uh, some of the lowest grain prices, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in, in my lifetime cost per acre. You know, $3, $3 wheat and corn and, and $7 and a half bushel beans. And when you when you put in the cost of cost of uh, effect for price per acre, uh, it was some of the lowest prices in history. So uh, I came through that, and now I'm hopeful that uh, uh, you know things will change. Uh, you know, with this new president and, and new ag secretary and, and new direction, and uh, you know we're going to have to change that along with it, and it's not going to be very very easy. Yeah, it's definitely been a difficult few years for farmers. You know, we've definitely seen that up in our area here too, where corn and soybeans have just been, it's been a struggle for about six, seven years now. It's been as rough as I think it's been since the 80s. I remember, you know, I was born in the 80s, but I, I always hear dad talk about how tough that was. And I think, time. yeah, I think this is, a, you know, as as close to that as we've seen in my lifetime. And Changes at least on corn and soybeans are changing a little bit now, or prices on them yeah. a little bit now. So hopefully that'll continue a little bit. But what else are you doing on your farm to kind of work through that, you know, and 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 try to uh, move towards the future? You know, we talked with Kara a little bit about some of the regenerative practices that you're doing and and all the different stuff you guys have going on out there. You right. Know, what are you uh, looking at towards the future to diversify for that? Well, one thing we're going to have to do is, is somehow cut our costs. Uh, the the new machinery you, you can't get it and what you got you got to patch it up and, and and make it work. So I'm I'm cutting corners and uh, I'm looking at uh, all of the initiatives that are out there uh, right now to see you know the best direction uh, you know to go in as as a farmer. Uh, I do believe that regenerative agriculture is the way to go. Uh, but like I said, it has to be some success stories. You know, if I was able to you know, bring my beef cattle in, you know, I was able to fence my whole farm in and then after harvest, bring my beef cattle in to, to uh, crop rotation there and, and let them eat the, the vegetation. Uh, these are things that I want to do, but uh, there's a process in, 
uh, that we have to do to, to do that, you know. Are you seeing are you seeing a community around you that's taking a look at some of that too? Like other farmers in your area adding cover crops and some of the things that you guys are working on on your farm? Yeah, yeah. And I see uh, people in the area uh, trying to adapt too. Uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, I would say over the past 20 years, I've seen uh, three major commodity uh, you know, buyouts from the from the from, uh, from the government, uh, cotton, cotton buyout, uh, peanut buyout, and uh, tobacco buyout. All all major uh, commodities and and all crops that I used to raise. I was raised as a tobacco farmer, uh, so all those things are, are now out. And uh, many farmers like myself expanded uh, my my grain uh, operation and uh, beef cattle, we've been adapting the whole time. And, and I believe that we're at another curve in the road where we're gonna have to adapt some more. And for a lot of people that's been watching this, black farmers didn't get a whole lot of the uh, subsidy payments and stuff. So we've been scrambling the whole time. Uh, so to scramble a little longer, um, we'll probably make the cut. You know, you try for the team and you keep scrambling, trying to make the team. So we'll probably be on a team. We won't we won't be the starting five, but we're gonna be on the team, uh, you know, su- surviving. And uh, what Biden is coming in and, and doing is is very sweeping change to, to agriculture. And you're asking a farmer who's 70 and higher uh, to totally change, you know, the way that you're doing business. And it's gonna be a tough sale because farmers are very stubborn and independent. And we sometimes like to do things in a pattern and not make the uh, appropriate changes. So this is one of those times in history that I believe that uh, farmers are going to have to adapt and make the changes uh, uh, quickly and swiftly if, uh, you know, they want to survive because uh, the three major commodity prices are are up and down and you're going to have to be able to to survive and, and, like I said, make the cut. Now, in the year 2021 and 2020, last year, I planted corn in May, even some in the first week of uh, June. And uh, uh, the seasons are changing due to climate change. Uh, shorter shorter planting uh, seasons, shorter harvest uh, uh, seasons. Uh, years ago, I was... I would be finished uh, harvesting uh, soybeans by the end of October. Now I'm starting in November. It's it's a shorter a shorter uh, a harvest. Uh, the seasons are changing, and uh, it's all due to the extreme weather, the extreme heat, uh, the extreme acts of, of Mother Nature. That's that's changing uh, the way that uh, our farmers are farming. So you mentioned that you used to plant at the end of March. In the last couple of years now, you, ha- you haven't planted until May. And that's because of what the weather patterns have been doing because in your area? Patterns. Yeah. You know, because now we're still, it's snowing ice now on the ground in March. <laughs> you know, when uh, before, you know, uh, spring was in full season by the end of March. Uh, you know, and I used to harvest corn in mid-August. Now it's September, <laughs> October. You know, so the, there's a big change in uh, uh, the seasons as far as uh, 
planting and harvesting and a, and a shorter period of time to plant and a shorter period of time to, to harvest, all, all due to the extreme weather. What do you see in terms of changing some of your other crops and stuff? So you used to really focus on tobacco. Now you guys got vegetables and all kinds yeah. of stuff like that too. How did some of that start coming into the, to the system? Well, I'm looking at doing things differently. Uh, diversifying my farming operation, uh, uh, cutting costs, uh, looking at uh, a more cost-effective way to uh, uh, to do things, and using what it is that I have. Uh, for example, uh, uh, when I stopped tobacco uh, farming, uh, there's pretty much nothing you can do with tobacco harvesting and planting equipment and curing bonds other than raise tobacco in them. Uh, but I, I can use a, a disc harrow and, and a planter uh, still to plant corn and a combine to uh, harvest all three of the major uh, commodities. So I didn't need any new equipment. I may have uh, just expanded my particular uh, uh, acres. Uh, but for someone looking to get into farming, they would not have been able to do that. Or if I wasn't already planting those particular commodities, I would have had a more uh, of a uh, cost cost factor to go into another commodity. Uh, so that's what I'm doing different. I'm using what I got, uh, you know, making repairs on older machinery and, and tractors. And uh, I'm doing that work myself. I'm running my own fencing. I'm repairing my own bonds to do more multi-use, uh, uh, multi-use from the uh, bonds and stuff that I have on the farm and, and just using what it is that I have. So I'm keeping my costs down and trying to look at uh, different ways to bring uh, a new income uh, to, uh, 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 to the bottom line and to the farm. So I'm thinking outside the box. And uh, so I think that some of these initiatives uh, uh, that they're gonna do congressionally and through federal aid, uh, those things will help, uh, but, when it's all said and done, you know, farmers are very proud people. And uh, I would like to depend solely on the market for my crop. Uh, whether it's a, a bushel of sweet potatoes or a bushel of beans or a bushel of wheat or a bushel of corn, I would like to get a fair price for for that commodity that, uh, that I produce. Yeah, no, totally agree. And um, in being able to showcase, yeah, we got to continue to reduce that cost of production. Because a lot of other countries around the world, they can produce the same type of crops for super cheap. Well, I tell you, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, man. Uh, Brazil, uh, uh, even places like Zimbabwe, where the soil is two foot deep. And, and mine here, at, at some of my best land, I don't have but a foot a foot of topsoil. And, and the best soil and all of my acres put together, there's only some acres that, that I have a foot of topsoil. Uh, Brazil has two harvest seasons for soybeans, although they, they they spray three or four more times than, than American farmers, but uh, their land and they're producing more. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to say they, they, they're, they're, they're better workers, but they're more diligent workers, which means they're willing to work uh, longer hours to, to make that crop. Uh, they're catching up. Uh, they're catching up with uh, the three the three uh, major co commodities in, uh, in America, corn, wheat, and soybeans. And for a lot of people who don't understand American history, 
Those were three things that America did better than anybody. Uh, produce corn in the corn belt and, and soybeans and wheat. We've done it and we've done it better than, than anybody, but now we're losing that cutting edge. And it's because we're not doing what we need to do in American agriculture to, to keep that machine going. Uh, there's a lack of interest uh, from young people uh, to do turnkey farming and, and to take over the family farm. Uh, that problem exists with uh, especially black farmers because they seem, my son seen me scramble. They don't want to be a farmer. But white farmers, large scale white farmers have the same problem where you don't see uh, uh, many, many young people taking over the family farms. Uh, so no matter how good the program is, uh, we got to build want to back into the American fabric of uh, agriculture. We got to build that uh, uh, back into the mindset and thinking. And, uh, and we need to start showing agriculture in and on media in a positive aspect instead of in a, in a negative aspect. Uh, you never hear about farmers unless something bad going on, some food disease, uh, uh, some, some, some bad disease with cattle or, or some uh, a natural catastrophe where farmers can't produce the food. Show them in a positive light. Show, them, show what happens and what goes into the process to growing this crop. And uh, show, show, show agriculture in a positive light. And maybe more young people will want to do it. Uh, so that's yeah. I think that's, that's spot on. They got and, to do regenerative agriculture. Just some, mm. you know, just some real want to there. Well, that's just one one of the ways to diversify. And you know, on my family operation, I'm seventh generation on my family's farm here in, yes, in Iowa. Um, but we only farm about 700 acres, and so it's not enough. You know that. Uh, so I I started my own company, and uh, and now Zach and I, of course, are professional podcasters. So I mean, hang our hat on that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's not enough opportunity for, for people to be able to go back to that operation and more and more operations closing up shop all the time. And, uh, and that trend's going to keep going. But I mean, when Zach knows better than anybody on showcasing, you know, what we are doing on, on the family farm, on our day to day and, and being able to tell that story, I think you're exactly right. Well, you know, my hat goes off to you because, uh, you know, one of the most, uh, uh, difficult things for me as a farmer. Uh, I'm 55. I feel great. I feel great. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what 55 is supposed to feel like, but I feel good, and I can still work and do all these things. Uh, but thinking about all of the generational farmers that came before me, uh, that that went that followed the footsteps, and it looks like I may break the chain. You know. Uh, so for me as a farmer, it, it hurts, you know, not to have one of the children say, hey, dad, I want to do this. I want you to show me the ins and outs, uh, everything you know about this business. I want you to teach it to me. Uh, I'm not hearing that uh, from my children. That may change in the coming years. Uh, but for me, as uh, all the highs and lows I've seen in life, uh, for me, that's one that's, that's that's a very painful chapter for me, uh, because you know we have these farms and, and equipment. We got a turnkey operation here, and we really don't see the spark uh, from the children uh, that want to do this. And uh, uh, we got to find the answer 
uh, to that. And, and uh, I'm looking at you. I don't see no gray haired man. So, I, man, I love you. I want you to keep on working them 700 acres and, and find, find a way to, to make it work. But, but when it's all said and done, stay on the farm. It's not going to be easy. Uh, and, and, and this, uh, you know, won't be a, a fix in the next couple of years, but, but stay on it and, and, and try to make it work. Yeah. And, and I see that there is opportunity, you know, for young people. And yeah, I'm, I'm 26 years old, so I still got a long way to go. And, and my dad, my dad's uh, just a couple of years older than you is all. I think that's amazing that you're 26 and you got, and you're farming. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, my hat's off, my hat is off to you and, and I'm, I'm proud because, uh, you know, you're, you're the next generation that, that I'm speaking about, you know, I have children your age, <laughs> you know, 26 and I just turned 29, you know? And, uh, so, uh, my hat's off to you and I will, and I want, I want to encourage you to stay on the farm and, uh, you know, make a go out of it. And I want to be the first to tell you that it's not going to be easy to do it. I, I couldn't agree more with you guys when you talk about how important it is to keep the young people coming back to the farm, you know? Yes. It's it's so important to, like you said, get that positive voice out there and and make farming. I always say we want to make farming cool. You know, I, we well, need you know, the kids to look at it and say, hey, that's cool. That's what we need. My son said, well, Daddy, you, you need to find a way to make farming sexy. <laughs> I said, at my age, I don't need to make it sexy. I said, you need to make it sexy. And you and you used another word. We got to find a way to make agriculture cool. And and uh, where the kids would say, hey, man, this is this is what I want to do. We have to make it interesting for them and uh, make them enjoy the work. I think uh, we have to find a way cohesively uh, to get more young people to even take a look at the farm, you know. Uh, young people make uh, visits in the summertime to somebody's working farm so that they can see uh, what that looked like. You know, that an apple just doesn't show up in the, the grocery store. It, it was growing on a tree. And it's an, it's an amazing occupation. And the farm is the most rewarding work uh, you can ever you can ever do. Uh, it's not about getting a paycheck. It's it's about seeing that uh, uh, commodity planted and, and, and come up to full fruition and then harvested, you sell it and, and uh, you get that happy check and, and you know you've done a lot of work to get it, but you made that crop and, and you made it with the grace of God and, and, and hard work. Uh, my dad said hard work always pays off. And here's one uh, that I was raised up on. He said, uh, as long as you farm eventually, you'll be able to take care of your family. He didn't say that you would be able to pay your bills on this one particular season. He says you have to stay out there and stay at it, uh, going into one season and going into the next season and preparing. He says uh, a poor business is better than a good job any day of the week because you can't fire me. Uh, these are some things that a man said uh, you know, with a third grade uh, education, he said the land never mistreated anybody. People do. And he can plant just as good as crop as anyone if he was able to to get those necessary things that, that uh, you know, that uh, he needed. He also said that uh, when you plow, when you throw that plow in the, in the ground, that smell is the smell of heaven. 
Uh, so if you're a farmer and you threw that disc harrow in the ground in the spring of the year, you you know the smell that I'm, I'm describing. You take care of the land and the land will always take care of you. These are things that I try to incorporate every day. Awesome. Yeah, it's farming is unlike anything else, that's for sure. Uh, some of the struggles that I had with the two boys here on my farm are young men now. They're not boys. One wants, wants to be a race car driver, and, and, and everything got to go fast. I mean, absolutely everything. I don't care what he jump in, he mash it down to the floor and see what he got. I love that kid. And then I got one son want to be Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> so he plays the guitar. And and neither one is Richard Petty, and and the other one ain't ain't Jimi Hendrix. So I'm trying. To, you guys about to be looking at this second occupation here, which is this farm, man. Don't write the farm off because you may not be Jimi Hendrix or or uh, Richard Petty. You know what? You know a race car driver. Uh, but we would like to invite you guys. You know, maybe do your show. You know, live here from the farm, and uh, meet meet the family and and tour the farm and. And, uh, you know, see how we do it versus how you guys do it. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I can learn some things from you and you guys can learn some things from us, too. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be fun. Thank you both, Kara and John, for joining us here. And it's good conversation. Very interesting. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks, both of you. We'll keep in touch. Thank you for having us and thank you for thinking about us. That's it for Fieldwork Today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Our show is produced by Annie Baxter with lots of great help this season from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media. Ellie Lyons does our marketing. And Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to the operations staff at American Public Media who helped us out by recording and mixing this season. We are once again at Fieldwork Talk on all of our social media channels. And of course, don't forget that we love hearing from you. You can give us a call anytime with your comments or questions. That number is 651-228-4810. Again, that is 651-228-4810. Great work on another stellar episode, Zach. And thanks everybody at home for listening.